Hey guys, what's going on? Welcome to another episode of Dystopia Tonight. Don't forget to like and subscribe to us on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Uh, I have a great guest here with us tonight. He is the um, uh, lead musical director for uh, the Greg Allman Band, lead guitarist, singer, songwriter, and he's going to have an appearance at the City Winery November 2nd. Ladies and gentlemen, Scott Sherrard. What's going on, man? Hey, thanks for having me, man. Yeah, no problem, dude. How are you? I'm well. I gotta gotta compliment you on the name of the show. It's uh, it's pretty on the nose. Thank you. I I, <laughs> I you know I appreciate that, and I, I really like the way everybody's kind of resonate. It's just resonated with everybody so far, so that makes me happy because it makes me feel less alone. Yeah, and I mean you know if if there's anything we've learned from uh, what we've been through in the last couple of years, uh, you know, Zoom and dystopia become synonymous. Oh my so. god. Oh man, I was at this show the other day. It's so true. I was at the show the other day. It was a live gig. Um, and uh, oh my god, no, it wasn't even a show. I'm sorry. I, I don't know where I am half the time, but I was actually a ceremony. Um, one of my old uh, teachers got an award. She's not that old, actually, but I just mean like what, well, like earth science teacher when I was like a freshman. Um, and uh, we're we're watching these videos on the screen. Everybody's in the audience. And there was like a bit of a fucking delay and it literally starts buffering and like 200 people see that little thing in the corner. Swear to God, we all went into PTSD mode. We were just like, oh, <laughs> like we were all yeah. pained by it. It was so brutal. Well, it allows us to do stuff like this, which is cool. I mean, but uh, but yeah, it's uh, it's it's been fun to get back out there and play shows again and, and, yeah. and try to, you know, try to get back with it. But uh you know, certainly uh, the world has been getting smaller and smaller. And uh, so far, that's not working out for us. No. <laughs> yeah, isn't that fucked up, dude? That the more, like, all this shit is designed to keep us closer. I love that. I think it was like one of the one of the random iPhone commercials or whatever it was. I think they were, or was it Facebook? They were trying to sell some like FaceTime shit. And it was like, now you get to talk to your relatives whenever and wherever. You know what I mean? Like whatever the thing is. And I was like, have you fucking been outside? Like, have you seen the climate right now? Like, no one wants to do that right now. It's insane. I mean, now, I mean, between, uh, you know, Zuckerberg making a metaverse and oh, uh, and Musk building the rockets, I think they're all just planning on turning us into human batteries. Oh, my God. I know, <laughs> right? That's would be the best alternative. I love that Musk is literally going to send people to Mars to die. And everyone's kind of just like, yeah, we'll go. <laughs> like they trust that dude that much the only thing i can hope is maybe out of all the technology they invent to try to go farther and faster they can invent some things that save our asses back here <laughs> accidentally yeah you know that'd be great that's the thing though it is going to be accidental like they're going to be trying to do something diabolical and then we're like oh god well we happen to cure cancer here you go but anyway you know we <laughs> we were really going for uh uh you know something to absorb the power of the sun uh <laughs> you're like thanks i guess i don't know um did you enjoy at all any of the any of the zoom shit though like did you did you find like i don't know some kind of fun playing zoom shows or maybe like doing some shit online with your friends well yes i mean i you know i'm i'm really uh passionate about music education huh. um because of the genre of, of music I play is, I, you know, I call it American roots music because it's this or rock and roll. I mean, it depends on, you know, how I'm feeling that day. But I mean, if you look at this whole musical experiment that we did in America, I mean, besides 
really besides you know helping to crush the nazis it's really the greatest thing we ever did was music um and it was a project that was actually a multicultural project uh some of that was was uh was like most things with music and art and commerce was uh nefarious and deceitful and insane (laughs) and then some of it like happens with art and commerce was brilliant and groundbreaking changed the world and changed music forever right and like we do everything in america we did both of those things to the extreme but you know i what i like to call saturday night sunday morning meeting you know you have the blues and the gospel and that's you know that's the hill country people from originally from ireland Mm-hmm. And that's also the African-Americans who were stolen from their homeland and 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 had to, you know, initially find a way to to make it either to their original African drums or to take American instruments and create new forms of music. You have all these things coming together. And then eventually it just starts to fuse more and more. And now it's at the point where, I mean, shoot, when I hear it, when I hear it, like a Taylor Swift record came on the radio when I was in a cab the other day. Right. And it's all so mashed up now that I don't even know what it is anymore. Right. And I think that's probably a good thing. I mean, I think that's like, it's one of the indicators of what we can do when we actually collaborate with each other and don't fight with each other is our musical output, how that changed the world. Sure. You know, and so a bit of a rant, but that's, my passion for music education, it goes through all those genres of American music. And I, I was already, you know, leaning on being an educator at first to make a living like 20 mm-hmm. years ago. And then I kept at it because I started meeting so many incredible people. I mean, I've always been teaching in New York City. I used to have a studio in Midtown when I started. Uh-huh. And I started meeting all kinds of really fascinating, successful people, the kind of bands I've played in with Greg Allman and and doing a lot of playing at the Ramble with Lee Von Helm with my own band and mm-hmm. sometimes even with Lee and doing recordings and then now being with Little Feet since 2019. You know, you meet some fascinating people when you open your doors to educating them and you're playing with people like that. Right. And I really loved the students and I love their enthusiasm. And I, like you do when you start teaching a lot, you start learning a lot more about yourself and what you think about music. So when the shutdown happened, I had really not been teaching a lot. I'd been teaching a few hours a week on Skype, actually. And I was doing people in like Italy, on Australia and uh, England and and California and everywhere but New York. You know, I had a couple people from New York who would come see me in my apartment. And I said, you know what? I'm going to just put the word out there and get on Zoom. And I did. And man, I'll tell you what, at teaching business on Zoom, I mean, I like to I like to talk smack about being on Zoom, but man, <laughs> 20 hours a week of teaching um, really saved my family's ass. I mean, you know, I got a couple little kids and we couldn't tour. You know, I was the summer of 2020. I actually started playing gigs outside with my band in the Northeast. Nice. We would do these, you know, romantic weekends, I used to call them. We'd go hit two or three <laughs> gigs in our cars, you know, and we'd play outside, rain or shine. You know, right. and we'd run back home. But that first, definitely the first five months or so, um, it, it bailed me out. And I figured out from doing so much of that, a way to actually teach on Zoom. So mm. I've kept that up. And um, 
again, working with people sometimes all around the world, most of them are in the United States, but, um, right. It's, uh, it's been a big part of that. So that's mostly what I did. And then concert wise during the pandemic, the best thing I did was my friend, Chris Pizzolo, who's a publicist and also has a record label that I put my last album out on, uh, Chris and I concocted this idea to take the American roots music thing a step further and attach it to full album sets. And what I did was I, I became, uh, this was like big time lockdown time. So I became like a videographer. Uh, I'm already, uh, sort of a part-time recording engineer for my home studio. So I had to bone that up a little bit Damn. and solo performer. And I went to my friend uh, Joni Ellenson's house in Woodstock because we were renting a house upstate during the whole. We live in the city, but we were up there for the whole thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Get out of there. We already had a place up there ready to go, so we we went. We just did that full time. I went and my friend Joni had this beautiful big basement, and I went down there and I set up a studio and we did this series that's still up on YouTube where I would sit and play and talk, and I was playing whole albums by. Uh, artists I've worked with. So I did Greg Allman's Laid Back. Um, I did Greg Allman's Southern Blood, which is a record I wrote songs on, played on, co-produced with Greg right. and Tom Was. And then I did uh, my last solo album at that time, which was Saving Grace. And I did uh, Little Feet Sailing Shoes. So I did oh, four nice. full albums as a solo performer where I told stories and stuff. And I filmed it with a nice stationary camera and pro audio. And those were really, uh, really well received. And people even still watch them and comment on them. And, uh, and like I said, I got, you know, we, we tried to jump out and do gigs wherever they would let us, where it was safe. Mm -hmm. um, there was definitely one or two in the summer of 2020 where I remember one where I had to pull the promoter aside and I said, we're going to stop playing if you don't figure out how to get these people to be safe again. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah, there yeah. was some odd stuff that we all had to deal with. So absolutely, um, man. And it should never been put on us, but it was such an awkward fucking time where like last minute you would find out that the promoter wasn't, you know, was blowing off safety regulations or whatever it was. And you had to make that weird decision whether to bail. I, I had to bail a couple times on stuff. Um, you know, even after finding out that people had gotten COVID in an area where they were just like not giving a fuck about it. And I was like, then I'm not coming to your club. Like, that's it. Yeah. And it was, I it mean, it was a bummer. That's especially hard for a stand up because that, that outdoor thing that only works for, for certain cats. Sure. Acts, you know? Oh, yeah. yeah. Everything, you know, what was interesting about that too, though, is like, once you kind of got around the idea of like, you know, that it wasn't exactly going to be the same. Cause I think a lot of people were like, Oh man, I'm not, if this is what comedy is going to be. And it was like, no, I don't think comedy is going to be zoom comedy. I think zoom com like some people couldn't wrap their head around it. And I it wasn't, wasn't, I wasn't even going to mention zoom comedy. That's yeah. Like, it's, it's unimaginable to me. Yeah. It was garbage, but it was one of those things that once you acknowledged it was garbage and you were just going to have fun. Like <laughs> I, I, you know, I think I had, I started to have a better time with it. Not that I did it a lot. Cause I really just didn't enjoy any, like any of it at all. And, you know, uh, I, I didn't feel it was necessary, but, you know, I did a couple charity things here and there. Um, and once I kind of got over the fact that it was never going to be, you know, what it was, then I was just like, well, then this is just uh, this is just a weird muscle to exercise and it'll be kind of fun. And you had to kind of talk through it. A lot of comics I know went on and did like, you know, they would it would be so funny to me because it was like they've been doing it forever. And it was these like super old hacky dudes. 
and uh, they'd wait for a laugh. And we'd all just be like, oh, dude, you're not fucking they're not you're not getting that on here, man. And it was just the most brutal, like ugh, fucking awful. But yeah, that was kind of fun to watch uh, people die uh, on Zoom figuratively, not literally. Uh, <laughs> but um, that's just a cruel comic thing at heart. Um, the Greg Allman band, man, when you I, I didn't know that you had you had to audition for that to get that. Yeah, it was a weird audition, though, man. I I'd been playing with my buddy Jay Collins, who had already he'd already been playing sax in Greg Allman's band for mm. a few years, and while he was doing that, I was playing guitar in his band. Okay. And uh, the whole time, Jay was always saying to me, "You know, you'd be perfect for this." I think the first time he mentioned it to me, I was in like my late twenties. So, you know, I'm thinking, okay, well you know, how's this ever going to happen? And he said, well, we got to find an opportunity where Greg is playing um, locally where I can get you up with the band. And anyway, it just became, Greg had some, he always had health issues in those last years, but he was, right. had canceled some shows and he was doing some shows and it was set up for me a couple times and didn't happen is what I'm trying to say. Gotcha. And, and then in the summer of 2008, Jay calls me up and he says, um, are you working tonight? And luckily I wasn't. And he said, okay, get in your car, come meet me on the Jersey Turnpike. I'm going to take you to Camden. You're going to sit in with the Allman Brothers band. And uh, that's that, going to be your audition. I got to say, the be I'm stunned that you even went because the beginning of that sentence, which is get in your car, I'm going to meet you in Camden or get on the Jersey Turnpike. I'm gonna, like that, never a good sign. <laughs> no yeah, one, pretty much. No one's ever heard that in that order and gone, I trust this I person. Mean, I will do or, this. Or you're in entertainment. There's two ways to look at that. That's true. Absolutely. Because, you know, it's, it is, you know, all these forms of entertainment are just like, you know, they're always one step from, a, from, from being, uh, you know, uh, you know, being working for life for a crime family, you know? <laughs> um, so basically, you know, I met him, we went and I met Greg and in his dressing room and he was really, um, you know, of course, he he was a natural star mm -hmm. and he had, you know, some people interpret it as imposing. I, I found him to have just a very kind of like magical presence. And I grew up going to see the band from when I was a little kid. They were my ironically, they and Whittlefeet were my favorite bands as a child. They were like wow. my Beatles and Stones. So I'm kind of on my second round of doing this this run with the heroes. But um, but Greg right away was really nice and he asked me he said man you know i've heard you can play jay loves you and he says uh you know i was wondering do you know all those uh wayne bennett licks on the bobby bland records mm -hmm. and wayne bennett was one of the two guys were wayne bennett and pat Hare, but they were the guitar players on those bobby blue bland records um like uh i'll take care of you further on up the road his version of stormy monday right um and of course, everybody knows Turn On Your Love Light. They probably oh, yeah. know it from The Grateful Dead, but that's a Bobby Blue Bland song. And that's Wayne Bennett on there. And uh, I immediately knew all that stuff because when I was a kid, I used to play with all these blues Chitwin Circuit act, acts uh, in the Midwest. Wow. How old? Uh, oh, when I was like 15, I started wow, man. playing in blues clubs and you know going on little tours with guys like uh, Willie Higgins and... Uh, Harvey Scales. Um, oh, wow. Eventually, I played with Buddy Miles, uh, Hendrix's drummer, uh, Hubert Sumlin, and Pine Top Perkins, who played on all the 
you know, a lot of the Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf records were like our local musicians. Like you'd go see them play for like 10 people and go hang out with them. And <laughs> it was, it was unbelievable, man. I mean, they were like the architects of rock and roll, the biggest influences on the Stones and Hendrix and all that stuff. And they, you know, a real American story, you know, yeah, <laughs> reduced to playing in a bar, but kids like <laughs> me would go down and hang out with them and soak up whatever we could from them. Um, this was in the early nineties in mm -hmm. Milwaukee, but that all played into when I met Greg of speaking that common language of the blues and understanding the deeper levels of what it means to play the blues and understanding when to step up and step back, uh, call and response accompaniment, you know, playing a solo and meaning it. Mm -hmm. Um, and also I think, a big thing that Greg and I had was that the song comes first, right? You know, the, the solo is always later. And I know that may sound weird to fans of the Almond Brothers band, but I mean, <laughs> if you really listen to a song like Midnight Rider or Melissa, you'll hear a perfect song, mm -hmm. you know, that's on par with a Paul McCartney song or, you know, a Tom Waits song or a Leonard Cohen song. I mean, they have, you know, Greg was and Dickie were, amazing songwriters absolutely um, so when i sat in i played some blues with the almond brothers and i i get, greg got a big kick out of it and he came up to me and he said you're in my band and that was that was how i knew i'd damn and you had never met him before right i hadn't met any of those cats i had wow. never met warren or Derek or any of them holy shit it was pretty intimidating i mean i was I'm 30 i call i you know first i went and sat out in the audience they gave me a seat and I was watching it and there was this row of teenage kids with tie dye shirts on in front of me mm -hmm. with their parents. And I said, my God, it's still happening. This was me. And yeah. now I'm going to get up there and play. That's what I was thinking. Oh, wow. And as I was getting ready to go on stage I, so long ago that I had a flip phone, I remember I called my wife and I said, I'm going to, I'm going to go on now. Just think about me. I've never been so nervous in my life. Um, and Jesus. you know, she's, she's the best. You know, and then um, once they told you you were in it, were you like, you know, weight lifted off your shoulder or were you actually like, because I find that kind of funny. Anytime you're doing an acting gig or you're going for an audition for something, there's always a little bit of whatever, but you're like, eh, if I get it, I get it. If I don't, I don't. And then when they tell you you've got it, you're like, fuck, now I got to really work. Like, I got to be really good all the time. <laughs> I, I, I don't know where. Uh, I don't know where Dustin Hoffman is at these days, but um. <laughs> Do you remember when he was, do you ever watch uh, Inside the Actors Studio? Yes. So that was one of my favorite shows. I actually saw it live one time oh, in nice. New York. I got tickets and saw a live uh, recording of the the Robert De Niro one. Holy shit. And that was pretty seismic. But I'll tell you, man, I'm like a lifelong fan of that show. When Hoffman was on, he said something, and you could look it up. Like, I'm going to paraphrase him. But, you know, Lipton asked him, he said, so did you ever get to the point where, uh, you know, he asked him about his career. You've achieved all these things. And what really sticks with you? And he says, uh, he goes, Dustin Hoffman goes, man, I'm always, I'm always terrified. The phone isn't going to ring again every time I finish a job. And every time I audition for a job, I think this is it. This is the end of my career. And he's like, that feeling has never left me. And uh, that's pretty much how it felt when I got the gig with Greg is like, okay, now prove it because yeah. The next step, there's always these next steps with these kind of things. And, and the next step with that was, well, now you're going to be the guitar player for Greg Allman. You really think you're up to that? Right. 
you know, and I had to really get my mind around that challenge. Yeah. And that's a good, I love that Dustin often said that to you. My friend was just on a movie set with Tom Hanks a few years ago. They were doing, you ever see uh, Bridge of Spies? You know, I saw it on a plane once and I don't, I don't remember it very well. <laughs> that's, that's the death sentence of all movies is if you've seen it on a plane while you're trying to concentrate and not being in the air, you're like, I don't remember that fucking movie. Um, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's never fails, but it was a good movie. Um, but anyway, they were in it and they were between scenes and he just, they were talking back and forth or whatever. And I think he turned to Tom and he was like, so, um, you know, uh, what do you got going on after this? And he's like, I don't know, man. I was like, I'm just waiting for the phone to ring literally like the same kind of thing. And he was just like, what do you mean you're Tom Hanks? And he goes, you never stop wondering if you're going to stop working, man. And it was just like, it just like blew his fucking mind. Cause he was like, just doing a bit part. And Tom Hanks is like the star of this movie. And, you know, but, uh, uh, you know, Woody from uh, Toy Story and all that other shit. And it doesn't matter. Absolutely. I mean, well, I mean, for him, he's going to be, you know, with both those guys, you think, well, they're going to be fine. But the thing is, is that to stay creative and stay in the game is the real point. It's not yeah. about the money when you're actually striving to be an artist. Right. Um, and you never lose that kind of. I think the second, you know, you know, you've made it, you're basically Kanye West at that point. You <laughs> Let's just hope implode. you're not Kanye. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you basically just completely implode. Your yeah. music becomes insane and, right. and everything is broken. I mean, you've got to, you've got to have a lot of humility to be a creative person and try to have a career. And then yeah. if you want to try to have a family and like, be a fully realized human being and be good at it. That's mm. the next thing. Do you guys see someone like Kanye, Kanye and, and, you know, having been on the road and worked with all these great people and all of this shit, do you see somebody like Kanye and go, Oh man, I know the path to that level of crazy. Or do you see him and think like, what a weird fucking dude. Like that guy is mentally ill and needs help immediately. I, I mean, I've been, I've been disagreeing with him ever since, you know, he went, he went MAGA on us. Yeah, absolutely. And he's just been, he's just been deteriorating ever since then. I, you know, I think a couple things about Kanye. One is I think that in hip hop, his initial output as a producer in his first couple records were obviously brilliant and mm -hmm. seismic, but as he kept going and going down that rabbit hole of being on social media and becoming a celebrity and allowing people to have access to him and having a mental illness which he's acknowledged publicly and i think yeah that's an important part of this i think that that you know i mean we joke we joke about kanye because you know we know that he has greatness inside him somewhere mm -hmm. um and we know that it's a tragedy that he's online all the time but at the same time it's like you have to take into account that this is mental illness and we we're having a mental illness epidemic as a society. So whatever he brought into 2016 and 2020 with him already, just put a few nukes in his brain of what happened between when you go from, you know, the, the insane inauguration, you yeah. know, speech of 2016 all the way through to the pandemic and now, you know, the possibility of world war. Right. And then you give a guy a Twitter account. Um, 
you know, there's yeah. probably a lot of guys with bipolar who are on Twitter acting crazy right and now. It, and it can't help to have handlers that don't fucking tell like to have all those people around you that are just yes men because you're that rich, you know, and you're just on they're on the payroll. Well, did you see the Elvis, the new, speaking of Tom Hanks too, did you see the new Elvis Presley movie that Baz Luhrmann did? I haven't seen it yet. Is it good? So I'm going to tell you, man, I, I was very surprised at how good it was. Wow. Because I'm not a Basil Ehrman guy at all. Everything mm -hmm. I've seen of his, I just, it's kind of like sensory overload. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but man, this is a really, really measured and really interesting take because really what that movie is about is kind of what we started, you know, talking about when I was talking about education. Mm -hmm. It's really about how Elvis was, there's literally a scene early in the film where he's running between Gary Clark Jr. playing a blues man singing that's all right mama with an acoustic guitar in a in a juke joint right he runs from that across a field to a, a tent revival baptist tent revival as a child okay so there's saturday night sunday morning i was talking about the invention of rock and roll and like then he goes home and sings spirituals with his family so right. it, it's that movie really ties together a lot of very deep personal musical influences of Elvis. And it actually shows how he was an artist and that Colonel Tom Parker played by Hanks representing, you know, this, this really like insane Machiavellian manager character mm -hmm. who was a terrible influence on this man's life and destroyed his life right. by, by, you know, made him money, but destroyed his artistic life destroyed his creativity and his wants and needs as an artist in order to get a quick and easy buck. And uh, it destroyed Elvis's mental state. It destroyed his family. And then ultimately, you know, we know how he went out was having yeah. a doctor, you know, giving him meds 24 seven. And this is, you know, this is what happens when, you know, you're, you're manipulated like that. And like you said, being surrounded by yes men, I mean, I there's a part of me that there's a part of me that feels sorry for Kanye. And there's another part that's like, dude, you know, seriously, be a man. You've got kids like get some help and deal with this. Like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And again, like you said, it, it is that double edged sword because we don't know. I don't know what it's like to live with uh, that many people surrounding you, just fucking hoping that you keep going so they can keep getting money off of you. But at a certain point, you got to take responsibility for your own behavior. All this movie is a great encapsulation of the tragedy of that whole dynamic and what it did to him. Was it fairly, would you say it was pretty, pretty accurate though, with like his, uh, his rise to stardom and all that other stuff? Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it moves fast for, for how much happened with this guy, but I think mm. they did a good, they did a really good job of getting an overview. And I thought the music was really well done, uh, in a very interesting way mm -hmm. where they'll have a song like that's all right, mama, where it'll morph from a Delta blues song to a rock song to a hip hop song with a quick freestyle. Like, wow. And it'll be in a scene that's like on Beale street in the fifties. Yeah. But with like a hip hop freestyle playing in the background to like a blues rhythm with a slide guitar. Like I like that Boz is trying to, was trying to pull all those elements. I mean, I'm assuming it was him. Maybe it was mm -hmm. his, I don't know who the, the musical coordinator was. I mean, Gary Clark jr. Did a great job on everything he did in it. And certainly, I mean, they used a lot of the, it sounds like they used a lot of the original Elvis vocals and stuff. Um, nice. Which are pretty astonishingly great. Right. I mean, the guy was like an astonishing 
vocalist. Yeah. It really was. And he wanted what I loved about the movie is that it showed what I didn't know was the Christmas special story, you know, which was filmed when 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 uh, Robert Kennedy was assassinated. They were in the studio filming it. And Elvis in real time while he was filming the Christmas special was de-Christmasing it. And like <laughs> he made a political statement out of it. He made a musical statement out of it by going wow. back to his original sound for the first time. And oh, shit, I didn't know any of that. Oh, you're going to love that part of the movie. It's real. That part to me was fascinating is he every time he'd turn against the colonel, mm -hmm. his artistry would would surface and it would be another moment where I went, oh, that's why I like him. Right. And you started to realize that manipulation. And then, of course, the big the big reveal, you know, spoiler alert, although people may know this going into the movie if they know Elvis's history. Colonel Tom Parker was I believe he was from Holland. Mm -hmm. uh, which I didn't know that either. And he had like a fake name and he couldn't leave the United States because if he did, he wouldn't be able to get back in. He was essentially right. an illegal alien. So, uh, you know, Elvis, the whole end of the movie is talking about doing this international touring, which never happens because the colonel can't leave the States. Right. But the colonel doesn't tell him that. He hides it from him mm -hmm. and manipulates him so that he can't leave. God damn, man. That's tragic. As as a music teacher, I'm curious. What is there any particular? Because like got all those music documentaries. Or well, there's the biopics. So you got Elvis, Bohemian Rhapsody, the Elton John one. Um, I think I know there's a couple others now. I'm blanking on, but all that stuff coming out, and even with the documentaries, is there one that uh, you think kind of encapsulates a decade, a time period, what what it's like to be on the road that you would show your students to be like, that's what it was like, you know, at this time, and that's what true artistry is. Well, I mean, I mean, I was born in 1976, so I, I basically like the peak of the Renaissance was like 77. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I understand. So I, you know what I mean? Like in yeah. 77, record album sales were the number one grossing form of entertainment in the United mm -hmm. States. Entertainment, wow. more than crazy. film. Yeah, was was record album sales. So that doesn't even include the concert revenue or merch revenue. Which of course now it's it's completely upside down. Sure. You know, so so now it's that's the concert revenue from playing shows and the merch from playing shows is where all the money is mm -hmm. in the music I play anyway. Right. And the records are like the worst possible thing you can do monetarily. Right. But they're like a, they've become to to people left in the business, they've become like a necessary evil. Yeah, but there's somewhat novelty now, aren't they? Like, I think a lot of people buy like, you know, um, I mean, I, I say a lot of people and I know I do, but like, I love when I see a band that I'm going to see has like a record out, you know what I mean? Like an actual, because it's it's more like almost an art piece now. Well, you I, still you know. But it's not making anybody money is what you're saying. I mean, look, you know, I, <laughs> I any anyone, anyone who was, you know, either born after or was two years old when 9-11 happened, is mm. a completely different human. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you're right. So, so, you know, for those humans, I have no idea. I actually think those humans are the ones who are going to have the next musical renaissance. I hope so. I and that's one speaking. of the reasons why I'm so passionate about this, this education angle to what we yeah. do is because I want to make sure, like, I, I feel like what's happening to rock and roll right now, there are direct parallels. If you mm. look at what happened to classical music, uh, where in the beginning of classical music, it was one of the higher selling recorded music forms. And then it gave way to swing and jazz and pop and then right. and then rock eventually. Mm -hmm. And then 
that goes to hip hop and boy bands and rock a little bit and then no more rock mm-hmm. and then Napster and suing children for stealing music and suing your fans for stealing music. Right. When when Netflix emerged and when HBO went to streaming or if you look at film and television in general, uh, because there are so many great unions involved in that entertainment business, everyone figured out a solution and monetized it. Right. And some of the most creative programming in the history of television was made in the streaming era because all these 10 episode amazing shows by season were coming out and being creatively developed and music went exactly the opposite way. Hmm. You know, we locked ourselves out of technology The, you know, the labels, the major labels, you know, made, uh, uh, basically like i mean essentially it's like insider trading like stock deals with people like apple and spotify so they got shares of the company to give you know to to convince paul mccartney to give the beatles catalog to them i was gonna say yeah and now they're but but now like major artists are selling off their shit like well then that's the well that's the fire sale that's going on right now is if you have a legacy catalog that's worth a lot, they're saying get out. Now, Springsteen, I think, is in the middle of selling his. He did, yeah. How much of that do they actually give away the rights to? Like, do they, like, because obviously they could still sing and, and sing their music whenever they want to. It's not like, like, are they giving away? What exactly are the rights? Do you know, like, what they're giving away? And Man, what that's, that's, a, that's a good question. I, I don't know how they structure those deals, but I guarantee you if it's Springsteen or Paul McCartney or Bob Dylan, it's pretty damn advantageous towards them. Yeah. Okay. I was going to say, yeah, Bob Dylan did it too. I forgot about that. Yeah. They don't, they don't, they don't lose. So um, I don't know. I got on a tangent there, but you had asked me a question uh, about teaching. Mm-hmm. I well, I was asking you about just about, I mean, I love the tangent by the way, cause that's, I didn't know most of that stuff. And I, we've touched on the Napster stuff and all that other shit before. Like, Oh yeah. Where... I was saying what year I'm from. That's yeah. What, yeah. That's yeah. 77. Yeah. Yeah. So my experience of touring you're asking me about films that I would recommend to students. So my experience of touring um, was like this whole, God, how, what's a way of describing what I've been doing for the last 15 years? <laughs> so my three favorite bands since, mm-hmm. since I was about 11 years old were the Allman Brothers, Little Feet, and the band. Oh, nice. So I have played in iterations of all three of those groups in some way or another um you know obviously i only with levon helm i mean i only recorded with him a couple times i got to open for him with with my band a couple times i got to actually i was subbing for larry campbell on his last show i mean i played levon's last gig with him at the bar yeah he died like a few weeks after the show oh my god um did you know, I, was he, was he not doing well when you were on tour to get, like, did you, was there any indication? I didn't actually ever go on the road with him, but I lived in Woodstock for two years down the road from the studio mm-hmm. and I would hang out there and jam and do shows and be around him as much as I possibly could. And he was, yeah, he was not well for a long right. period of time at the end. Um, Damn. the cancer kept kind of moving around as it does. Um, right. But yeah. And then Greg Allman, you know, was like an, almost it was almost a full 10 years it was like almost a decade odyssey with him of getting him through 
his last tours, his last album, his last live album, his last studio album, writing with him, weeding the band. And then with Whittlefeet, you know, I'm one of the lead vocalists. I sing all the Wool George music. And Wool is like one of the reasons I play slide guitar from being a kid. He's definitely one of the top, top reasons I even sing and write songs as Wool George. Wow. So taking that task on has been, it, you know, it's really all kind of through the looking glass. My, my career in the last 15 <laughs> years is very bizarre. I mean, I almost live in like a parallel reality mm. um, because what's going on out there, all of it, I don't really relate to on any level. I appreciate a lot of it. Mm -hmm. I admire a lot of it. Um, I see the value in a lot of it. But nothing really gets through to me like Ray Charles. Right. Or Jimi Hendrix. Or this music that mm -hmm. I get to live inside of and be with the creators of. And like, and when I've been with these, these masters, you know, sometimes I say it's like my it's like my my life has been like being with Van Gogh for the last year of his life. <laughs> and I get to set up the easel and occasionally he lets me paint a sunflower in the bottom corner or something. That's awesome. But I get to hang out with Van Gogh all the time. Right. And I know exactly how he mixes his paints. I know exactly what brushes he uses. I know exactly how he builds a piece from start to finish. Mm -hmm. I watch it done over and over and over and over and over again. And that's a skill set. And I think where I bring that into teaching is I bring that skill set into teaching. If there was a film, there's many, many films, and I'm actually kind of sitting here multitasking and racking my brain in the background. <laughs> the first two that came up in the vein of the ones you brought up, you brought up the Bohemian Rhapsody one, which was awesome. Yeah. The Elton John amazing. one, which I was kind of, I loved the actor who played Elton, but I wasn't so into the narrative arc and direction of that film i mm -hmm. saw that on a plane okay <laughs> um so these are graded on a curve then you yes, gotta get well, the one plane, i'll say yeah. elton i saw on a plane i didn't like as much okay um definitely man the ray charles movie with jamie fox yeah wow like ray is is ray is everything ray is everything that was a that was a powerful fucking movie that and jamie movie. just Jamie just killed it, man. Yeah. I mean, he and I raised my man. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's that I can't imagine how difficult that job was for him. And he right. just killed it. The other thing, which wasn't a great movie overall, but it has some absolutely amazing scenes is the James Brown one. I didn't get to see that one. I and that it was yet. Mick Jagger was a producer. And I thought Mick did a really good job. Cause I know he supervised the music pretty mm -hmm. heavily. I think he was very, he was very involved in that film. And there is a scene in the James Brown movie in the, about the middle of the movie where there's this famous recording session where they basically invented funk and James, this is a story I've heard for years. And I even played uh, a few gigs with Clyde Stubblefield when I was a kid. Wow. He used to have a jam session in Madison, Wisconsin. Oh my God. I'd go up to and hang out and I'd go up there and play. And Clyde's the funky drummer. You know, he's like mm -hmm. the most sampled drummer in the history of hip hop. Right. But I heard the story from Clyde and I've heard this story many times from musicians over the years. They were in this session 
where James was kind of making this transition from the R&B of the day, which was definitely based on like uh, uh, Jackie Wilson and the Five Royales and like uh, all this great Little Richard, all this great R&B music. And they were making the transition to funk. Mm -hmm. And James's instruction when he was arranging the song for the band was he pointed at the guitar player and he goes, you're a drum. And he points at the bass player and he goes, you're a drum. And the sax, you're a drum. Trumpet, you're a drum. Everybody's a drum. Wow. And that's kind of how his brand, because funk and being funky was around forever. Mm -hmm. That concept. But his brand of funk, which really is all about it being on the one, on the mm -hmm. downbeat. Because if you think about what James did is he put that extra emphasis on the one so if you have you know everybody are most 99 of funk music is like in four four times you go one two three four one two three four and if you're doing you know uptight music everything is like this is why i don't like electronic dance music is everything is one dynamic right, right? it just goes like this boom 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 and it's easy to digest but it kills your ears totally and swing, you'd have the bass drum feathering. Mm -hmm. You know, we call we call it feathering the one, two, three, four, one, two. Oh, okay, okay. But then on the top, you got ding, ding, da, ding, ding, da, ding. We call it spangling. And then you got all <laughs> these little accents the drummer will play on the snare. You know, you got all these polyrhythms. They call them polyrhythms. You lay them on top of each other. That's why jazz is our most sophisticated. It's our classical music in the United States. Right. What James did, and Ray Charles too, by the way, but James kind of took the Ray Charles thing and supercharged it, is he took that that one and he made the one powerful. Mm -hmm. So every time he got to the one, it would hit you. And then the two, three, four, the, the, the other side of the bar, there's all this subtlety and nuance that goes on in those rhythm sections that make it swing. Right. So when you next time you listen to it, listen to something like the funky drummer or um, say it loud. I'm black and I'm proud is a really good example of that downbeat. There's a bunch of big payback. You listen to any of them. But it, when the when the groove happens, you know, one, and I mean, this shit just swings, man. It's yeah. unbelievable. And in that movie, there's a scene they act that recreates that session where he sort of demonstrated how powerful um, his vision was. And of course, I think the movie also gives the just credence to, to people like Clyde Stubblefield and, uh, you know, uh, Jimmy Nolan and all the cats who were part of the band who played on that stuff. We got Fred Thomas here in Brooklyn, right. who's bass player on a lot of those records. Um you know, of course, eventually you had Catfish and Bootsy Collins on like Sex Machine. And, you know, Bootsy was like 18 years old. And like that was, you know, what Bootsy learned as a kid with James, he brought into P-Funk. And then it goes on and on and on from there, man. I mean, that's the whole DNA of hip hop started in James Brown's band. But the Holy makeup shit. of James Brown's band came from Ray Charles and the Five Royales, especially right. those two, you know. That's, you seem to be able to absorb that kind of stuff from like, like you seem somebody who's doesn't take lightly being in front of these people. And especially like since you were younger and you take, 
you know, um, I don't want to say like talent or information, but you seem to absorb everything that they have to pass on to you. Were you like that as a kid, though, like right from the get go, like super young, like just absorbing all this kind of musical information and knowledge and rhythm and how, how people play and kind of uh, observing that and incorporating into yourself? Or were you just like, I don't know, like a natural on your own or what, how, how did it flow for you? Well, you know, I was I was raised in a, a very uh, artistic house. Hmm. And, uh, you know, my father is a singer, songwriter, guitar player. And, uh, you know, I started by going to concerts all the time with them. And it started with, you know, from when I can remember going to concerts, all kinds. Mm -hmm. And then in my early teens, well, actually, when I was 10, I saw Stevie Ray Vaughan and Jeff Beck. Wow. And that was where it all started. <laughs> I mean, I remember I'm, I was 11. I'm sorry. I was 11 because I was just start, I had been playing guitar for a year and I was just getting serious about it. This was nice. Steve Ray Vaughan died about a year after the show. It was mm -hmm. the in-step tour, 88 or so. I, don't, I can't remember. I'm bad with the years. You could look it up. But it was the in-step tour with Jeff Beck. And it was in Philadelphia at the time. I lived for a few years in Newtown, Pennsylvania. Mm hmm and I went to the show and I was listening to both their records and I, I loved both their records, but I kind of felt like Jeff Beck had the edge. And the night I went, Jeff played first. I think they were switching closers from show to show. Okay. And it was like Terry Bozio on drums and Jan Hammer on keys. And they were a trio. Oh, shit. And it was powerful, man. It right. was like he was getting sounds out of the guitar. I mean, it was just. It, it was other world. It was like watching a. It was like watching a wizard, you know, pull dragons <laughs> out of his sleeve or something, you know. Right. And I just was transfixed, and it got to the end of the set, and I I remember turning to my parents and I said, "We should just go home. Like Stevie Ray doesn't have a chance." <laughs> I said, "There's no way Stevie Ray's got him. There's no wow. way he's got him." I'll tell you what, man. He came out, and I remember what he played, and of course. We all talked about it for years afterwards, and that helped keep it fresh in my memory. But came out and did Houses Rockin', and the whole energy in the room changed. And then the second song was a slow blues. It was probably things that I used to do or something like that. And, man, he got to the end of that, and I was just like, that's what I want to do. Wow. wow I, went from like, I went from that guy's a wizard, no one <laughs> can beat him, to that is who i want to be damn man yeah because he totally took control of the room back he started off fucking super strong and then it was like and now i'm gonna bring you back down and play something you know like a little slower a little bit more meaningful i'll never forget that show man we stayed he played like two encores we stayed all the way you know i mean i i remember being in there until the place was like you know third empty mm -hmm. just sitting there just like trying to reassess my whole life did your dad guide you at all from like, or did you want it? Because some people don't want advice from their parents, whether they're, you know, artistically inclined or not. But did, did he kind of guide you? Uh, I mean, not, not necessarily. I mean, my dad was not a, you know, he took stabs at being a professional, but he, he never really um, got a break in the uh. business side and uh, wasn't for want of trying and it wasn't for lack of talent. Right. But he ended up in broadcasting and eventually cable television. So he always had a day job. Okay. But, um, man, there was always jamming and stuff going on in those first couple years. And then I'll tell you what, man, like I'm, I'm kind of like, 
you know, I don't really buy into astrology, but whatever <laughs> the stereotype is of is of a Capricorn is like me. Yeah, like, yeah. I'm a super type A organized uh get shit done kind of dude. And when I was 12, I just, you know, started grabbing 12, 13, I started grabbing kids in my class. Do, do you have a bass? Do you have a drum? No? Okay. I've got a drum set at my house and a bass. I'm going to teach you how to play. And I already knew how to play all the instruments. <laughs> you know, and I started putting bands together and teach. No, man, you know, you know, kids would come and be like, hey, check out this Stone song. I'd be like, no, that's that's a Muddy Water song. We're going to learn the Muddy Water version. <laughs> like, I was already like a musicologist. And my family had this huge record collection. And they um, completely indulged me to the hill i mean really it was kind of a you know they weren't like stage parents but they were definitely like art parents mm -hmm. you know where it was like the the house was stocked with books and we would go see shakespeare and we would go see i mean i remember going to see uh finally when i got i got to milwaukee when i was 15 and we'd you know we'd go down to chicago and see glengarry glenn ross Wow. You know, and like go see all these mammoth plays and mm -hmm. like, you know, and there was a two blocks from my house in Milwaukee, which was on the east side downtown. There was the Oriental Theater. And every night I would go there that I could and I would go in and I'd watch Fellini movies and Godard <laughs> movies and stuff. I mean, Damn. and then I would go sit in with all these older blues cats at the Up and Under, which was also right up the street. So I spent all my time with the older black blues cats in the bar and then in the art house cinema mm -hmm. and that's kind of the best way i could you know make a summation of what my viewpoint is i mean it's like tell a story yeah well that's did you have a moment line with it did you have any moment in particular uh during your career maybe where you felt like you had i don't want to say made it necessarily but were you comfortable with uh what you were doing well comfortable is a pretty i mean you you know as a stand-up I like to say, you know, stand-ups and musicians are very similar. Yep. Especially like sideman musicians, which I've spent some time in my life being one. I'm more of a band leader, which also makes me a communicator with, with, with I shouldn't say sidemen anymore. That's probably not in vogue anymore. That's a 45-year-old <laughs> coming out. What do we call it now? Side people? Side person? Uh, I guess. I don't know. That's up uh, to you. Anyway, yeah. because, I, well, look, you know, I, I, I think... Uh, it really, you know, the personality side of this is really, it's what I'm trying to say is the personality side of it is really important. Being able to think on your feet and really part of that is never being comfortable. Right. That's, we're back to the phone, you know, waiting on the phone to ring fear. Yeah. Thing. No, I agree with that completely. Like if any, anytime you like, if I, I like having a little bit of those uh, jitters before you go on where you're like, I don't know what the fuck's going to happen. What do you think you're doing? And then you, it makes you good. Um, but I, I maybe comfortable wasn't the right word, but maybe like a sense of like, like even with like your parents, like nodding, like, did you feel like you were in the right place? You know what I mean? Like, cause I don't know. Like, I think when everybody's starting out, at least for me, when I was starting out, you know, there's always like, Oh, did I make the right decision? And then you have that moment where you're like, I'm never going back to doing anything remotely normal. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, you're like, yeah, this is, that was probably when I got the gig with Greg Allman. If you wanted me to pin a, pin a moment on as a, as a career thing, right? If, if you want to frame it that way, as an artist, it's kind of like a never ending evolving. Yeah. You keep looking for process. it process. 
but as a beginning, I, I feel like my career began in 2008 when Greg shook my hand and said, you're in my band. Nice. And I didn't know that at the time. I probably figured that out like five years later. <laughs> yeah. You know, like five years later, I look back and I go, oh, wait a second. This is who I am now. Right. And and probably one of those many times when I was at Greg's house writing songs or like sitting in the back of the bus. You know, we used to sit back there and listen to Pharaoh Sanders or Pink Floyd or, you know, hit a bong and watch Squid Billies all night. <laughs> it was one of those mo- one of those times. One of those times, I'm sure I sat there and went, oh, shit, this is who you are now. Like, you're yeah. you're kind of in the club now. Right. You know, and that doesn't mean it got any less hard. I mean, after I'll tell you, man, to be honest with you, when when Greg passed away, um it was kind of one of those moments of like, uh, you know, without going too deep into it, it's like, Oh, now you know who your friends are, don't you? Right. And I'll, I'll just say, I didn't, I didn't have a lot in the music business as it turns. (laughs) (laughs) That's so fucked, man. Oh my God. That's crazy. But I mean, so, but that's a double-edged sword. Well, I had, I had a ton of friends who were artists. Right. And I had a handful of friends who were, I call them tastemakers. Right. So whether it be somebody at a label, a publishing company, a promoter, uh, I can't eat. Yeah, eventually an agent came along that was a tastemaker. But like the whole business side of that gig coming to an end was like it went from when Greg was alive. Everyone in the business was treating me like I was this vital commodity that everybody needed. Right. And then when he died, I was treated like you know, a guy used to trim hedges at his house. Oh man, that is so fun. Is that, but is, is that because the, is that because, so you're talking about the industry mostly and not necessarily. Definitely none of, none of the artists. I mean, none the of the band, artists. That's great. You know, Greg, Greg's band, we're a family still now will group text sometimes. And nice. They're the greatest guys. And, and, um, I, you know, okay. and all the musicians, all the musicians I met playing with Greg, uh, we're we're really supportive man nice it, it's more, gonna say, it's more on the business it's it's like a, the it's the bean counters as greg used to say <laughs> oh man that's a great yeah exactly i was gonna say if it was the artist i would have been super surprised but i'm less surprised that the industry did that is it do you think it was more because um i mean they're scumbags for the most part anyway let's just be honest about it but uh you know there's like a handful of them that are decent but do you think it's because they changed hands over from 2008 you know what i mean because not a lot of those people stay in the position you get younger ones that are involved and then they kind of have to go along with whatever's you know uh basically feeding them at the time so as soon as greg passed maybe they were just they were just unaware of who you like did you spend time analyzing it at all or no i mean this was really this period i'm talking about was like well greg died in may of 2017 and then and i was trying to i had already had a solo career that was that was picking up steam and a manager who was a very very intelligent great human being who really bit off a lot on his Mm -hmm. own and 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 he got bit as hard as i did if not harder by the business Damn. But we had some, man, I have some amazing support from, from just dedicated music listeners who pack the shows and try, you know, I, I'm part of a community and a lot of them I met, most of them I met through playing with Greg and, and now the Little Feet community who just really support what I do. And 
they're amazing, but but getting turning it into a business or or getting involved in the uh, music business establishment was just all but impossible for a number of reasons. But the main reason is there just is not enough at stake anymore in music financially. You have it's a brain drain. Mm. You know, it's like if someone's really really talented at making money, they're going to be in tech. Yep. They're not going to be in the music business. You know, Mo Austin, Clive Davis, Ahmed Erdogan, they're designing apps right now. They're not right, right. making records. <laughs> right. Because those guys were about making fucking money. Yeah. And they made a lot of it. And But the thing is, is they were tastemakers. Mm-hmm. They took pride. Ahmed Erdogan took pride on making art. And he's a he's somebody I met. I mean, he was a big supporter of my career when I moved to New York. I mean, he's the guy who signed Ray Charles to Atlantic, right? And 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 produced all those early Ray records. Mm-hmm. And the 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 little bit of time I spent with Ahmet was very instructive. I mean, he there was one meeting I had with him where he predicted everything you and I are talking about right now in like 1999. Wow, the whole thing. Those guys like, blow me away when they know what's up. Yeah, he was like, this is fucked. Yeah. He was like, you got to get out. I was like, I don't want to get out, man. I was like, you know, what it was that? It was like 20, 20, uh, 22 years old. I'm like, man, I don't want to get out. You know, he was like, man, you're talented. But, you know, if this was the 60s, you'd already have like a multi-album deal with me. I wouldn't even be thinking about it. But he's like, I'm right. a chairman. I can't sign you at the time. Um, I think Jason Flom was the president. And uh, he passed. And... Uh, you know, I don't blame I don't blame Jason. Of course, he had a lot of ridiculous amount of commercial success and has had an amazing philanthropic career. So right. you, can't, you can't get upset about, at him at all. But um, but you know, I met he had an interesting suggestion, which now is even more prescient to me. He wanted me to he wanted to introduce me to Tommy LaPuma and have me make a have me make a jazz album. Oh wow when I was 22 and I was playing blues and rhythm and blues and I was writing like rock and roll songs. So I had a rock band basically, but he really wanted me, he heard me in a club, you know, and he really wanted me to go this direction of wearing a suit and playing the guitar and being like, sort of like John Pizzarelli, but really what ended up happening was, you know, he hooked, you know, Ahmed hooked me up with this team of guys who were working with Peter Sincotti, who ended up having a lot of success and eventually Michael Bublé. And I could have been in that pipeline, but I actually, I, I was just a stubborn motherfucker, man. I was like, I was like, man, I want to be like, at the time I was crazy, man. I wanted to be like D'Angelo meets Tom Waits. That's like what I was trying to do. You know, it's not a bad combo. Well, I mean, it's still two of my favorite artists and two artists I had just seen live at that time, which Mm -hmm. how many people, you know, have seen Tom Waits. I mean, I saw him two nights in a row at the beacon. They were the greatest some of the greatest shows, I mean, greatest shows of my life. Ray Charles, I saw Prince like seven times. Holy I saw shit. Waits twice. Um, saw I Al Green a few times. But man, yeah, but I, I I, don't know. I had a, we ended up, so my my creative partner at the time was this cat, Sean Dixon, who I went to high school with, who's just absolutely brilliant musician. And we, and multi-instrumentalist, and we ended up forming this huge, 10-piece band called the Chesterfields and did a record called Henry Street Soul. Nice. And we put that record out. We got some we got some very wealthy people to get behind it and invest in it. Damn. And we put it out on our own in 2002. 
So we were way ahead. Right. And this record was like the whole thing you see now from St. Paul and the Broken Bones to Tedeschi Trucks Band to um, whoever, it's it's that sound. Like we were right. doing that in like 2002. Absolutely. Yeah. With like a 10, 12 piece band. We were doing, right. it was all originals and it was completely that whole thing. And we had a little following here, but we never really figured out how to tour with it. It was just too many humans and, mm. you know, and it, and it eventually I ended up going solo and tried to do that for a while. And honestly, when I met Greg, I, I literally had just, gone to nyu the week before to look into getting i never went to college i went to an arts high school where i did study jazz and that's where i really had amazing teachers and learned music theory and education but i was i was getting ready to take a course to become a music teacher at nyu wow. when i got the gig with greg and he he derailed that yeah <laughs> <laughs> For the better. Next thing I know, I'm hitting a bong watching the Squidbillies, you know, playing for 2,000 people a night. I fucking love that he watched the Squidbillies, by the way. That makes he was me obsessed. Ex extremely happy. Is there anything that he imparted onto you, maybe, that, you, that you've taken with you all this time? In an innumerable number of lessons. Hmm. It's infinite, I think, is the word I was looking for, and I created some kind of word salad. Innumerable is great. That's a good... Um, but no, it, there's an, in, an infinite number of lessons I got from Greg. Um, God, uh, the songwriting hmm. process was amazing. We wrote, we co-wrote the song, My Only True Friend. That was it's a great fucking song, man. Oh, thank you, man. That was, so that good. was, that was a real, and I, I wrote a piece for the Bitter Southerner, a great magazine mm -hmm. about the writing of that song. I mean, it was a, it was an odyssey. It took three years to finish it. And it, wow. It, it really i know it doesn't it doesn't sound like it did but it, it really did no but i mean that's yeah i can understand that it it started with a a dream i had about Dwayne, and it was um it was one of those dreams man that was like maybe it was the weed i smoked with greg that night but <laughs> and i was you know i was staying i was at his house in savannah georgia in the swamp and uh it was caught it was one of those houses that has a name it's so big Oh my God. It was called Valhalla. Holy shit. Yeah. And uh, I'll tell you what, man, I, I don't know if I've ever told the story this way. So I'm going to try, I'm going to, I'm going to give you a fuller version of the initial inspiration. Awesome. So we're sitting on the couch with guitars and we're jamming all night, getting high. Mm -hmm. And then uh, we turn the TV on and we start flipping through and Greg's flipping through. And we saw an old SNL with Radiohead, and they were playing a Creep. Oh, nice! Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's that. And, and then they played. Uh, and then they played. Um, high and high and dry. Don't high and dry. High, don't leave me dry. Yep, great song. So they played. Then they played that song. I think those were the two songs they played on this episode. And uh, and Greg and I were like, man, that's a good song. Mm -hmm. And uh, I ended up staying. Someone else was staying at the house. And I ended up staying in Greg's mom's room. She was still alive at the time, but you know, she was at her home in Daytona beach. Right. And as I was getting ready to go to bed, it was my first night there. I remember I was looking at the walls and there's all these pictures of Dwayne and Greg, you know, like in military school and as babies and all the stuff. And I was thinking about it. I passed out and I had this vivid dream where Dwayne and Greg were together. And it was like, 
you know, they were like in their early twenties. So it was like before, like right before Dwayne died kind of period. Right. And I can still see this scene in my head that was in my dream. And Dwayne was talking to Greg and he said, he said the first lines of the song in the hook, he said, mm -hmm. you and I, you and I know, I'm going to paraphrase what it was because it was more colloquial in the dream. Right. He said, you and I know, uh, you and I both know this river will surely flows in the sun, but you and I both know this river is coming to an end. Keep me in your heart. Keep your soul on the mend. You and I know the road is my only true friend. That's what he said to Greg in the dream. Holy and shit. I, man, I woke up, it was like five in the morning and I like grabbed my journal and wrote mm. it down. Boom. And that's what I wrote down. Wow. And then I ran downstairs and grabbed a guitar and I, I ran out on the porch. I mean, I was like literally running because I could, <laughs> I had this whole vibe going from the dream. Yeah. You got to get it out. And I'll never forget, man, the sun was coming up over the swamp. Mm -hmm. You like out in back of the house, he had this boat slip with the, you know, this inlet that went eventually out to the ocean. Yeah. You had a boat out there and stuff and the sun's sun's coming up and it's all red and shit. And you got all the Spanish moss and I'm out there on this porch with my guitar, trying not to wake anybody up. And I play first thing I play is that B minor six from high and dry. Right. Oh, nice. And I didn't intend to do that. I just start playing that B minor six and then I start finding some other chords and then I start singing and I got that verse mm -hmm. and I'm singing the verse and now I got the chords and then when I got to you and I both know Rhodes, my only true friend, I was still playing the same chords. I said, man, it needs more sections. I got to write a song. So I couldn't wait to tell Greg. And of course I had to wait like seven hours, you know, the motherfucker used to get up at like 12 or one in the <laughs> afternoon. So finally, you know, the housekeeper gets there, she starts making omelets and pancakes and shit. Mm -hmm. And he comes out in his, you know, he comes out in his bathrobe and his slippers and I go, stop come with me and we go in the living room and I just played him what I had. And he sat there and he goes, man, that is a song. Nice. Wow. And he's like, we are going to write that song. Two things two, two kind of like, uh, you know, uh, uh, postscripts on that story is one is, and people ask me this all the time. I never told him about the dream. Because shit. I was always afraid that if I told him the origin of the song, that it would freak him out. Right. And I also think that he knew somehow. Because as we wrote the song and it became about his own mortality, mm -hmm. it also became about the mortality of those around him and losing his mother and his brother and returning to them. Wow. And he would talk to me about that. And I said, if you believe in the spiritual shit and the spiritual antenna, I said, in some ways, this song is going to get my man back to him. Yeah. You know, and I, and I, and I, I thought, man, if, you know, if I had to be the fucking, you know, the divining rod to get it from, from the other side to Greg, you know, whatever it is, whatever, I feel like music is a really powerful imprint when you leave it behind and, there was an energy around the song totally. that he heard right away. And we were already writing a few other songs mm -hmm. and they were all gone once he heard me play <laughs> that. Wow.
they were all done at that point. It was like, this is the song he knew. And the other thing I was going to tell you is when, when Greg passed away and then, you know, Don was mixed the record and did an amazing job. And then when I got, they sent me the album art. And if you look at the cover, you will see what I was looking at when I wrote the song. It is Greg's boat slip with the sun coming up over it. And oh I, God. I had never at that point, I hadn't done interviews for the album yet. And I didn't know the photographer. I didn't know the graphic designer. I had no connection whatsoever to the record label. And that's the photo they chose for the cover. Wow. Damn, man. See, that's worth it. That's worth everything. So that that's, but that's kind of how, you know, I got to say, man, like I've been really extremely, extremely lucky to work with these heroes of mine and, mm -hmm. and, and many others. I mean, the high rhythm section, you know, yeah. singing with Carla Thomas, traveling to Japan with her doing, you know, I mean, just, I've had amazing opportunities, you know, making my record with the Swampers and Muscle Shoals. Like I've been mentored by the best and I, and I feel very grateful for it, but man, Greg Allman, I, and nothing will ever touch it, man. It's just, I, I think about him every day, man, every fucking day. And every time I go on stage and every time I open my mouth and sing, like we did, we did Willin, the little great Little Feet song, Will George song on Southern Blood on the last mm -hmm. album. It was Don Was's idea and, and Greg jumped right on it. And we, we used to listen to Little Feet all the time. We were both obsessed, you know. Wow. I've always said, I always said to Greg, I said, man, when your brother died, you should have, and then Dwayne died in 79, you should have joined Little Feet, man. And he's like, right. God damn it. Yeah, I should have. <laughs> You know, but so so sometimes when I'm doing this job, most of the time when I'm when I you know when I'm when I'm playing with Little Feet and we're on a job and I'm singing, I'm thinking about him a lot because I'm thinking about how much he would have dug being in the band. Yeah, when I do Will and I always think about how he sang it. He was friends with Lowell, and oh. there's a lot of connections between the bands. They really admire each other. Like right. when when you talk to any of the Almond guys about Little Feet, they go, "Oh shit, that that's." that's the dudes and wow. we talk to the guys in feet they feel the same way about the almond brothers there's a Damn. lot of love and that really has made my day and the band you know levon was another one he loved he loved those bands yeah they really admired each other and it it, it really i'm so happy that they were symbiotic because they're the great american rock and roll bands oh yeah absolutely the band is amazing i, I have a friend on um who's a musician in asbury park her name is Rachel Anna Dobkin, and she helped curate. Um, she's a photographer too, but she helped curate. Oh, I, that oh, I know, I know Rachel. I I met her. She opened for my band. Oh, nice years ago, and we became buddies. And she's, you know, she's fantastic, man. Yeah, she's incredible, right? She's a great person. Yeah, absolutely, one hundred percent. I'm so glad you guys know each other. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. I just learned that she had helped curate that book for the band. All the all the photo like helped organize all the photographs and everything in that book, which blew me away because I love that book. Well, she worked. You know, she was. I don't. I don't know if she's still doing it. I haven't talked to her in a while, but she's working for two of the best who ever did it. You know, Elliot Landy and and yeah. Danny Clinch. Yep. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Dan Danny's amazing too. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, Clinch is my man. He shot all my all my photos for my last album and all my stuff on my website. He's Oh yeah, he's the best. He's he's everywhere. the king, man. He's everywhere. the king. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, there's man. there's no there's no better than Clinch, man. Yep, absolutely. And he blows a mean harp too. Yeah. Have you gone to the festival? Have you gone to um uh fucking see here now? 
I got to be honest with you, John. I don't, I don't do anything. I've got a, <laughs> I've got a, I've got a five-year-old and a 10-year-old boy and my wife and I, I love them to pieces more than anything else. And I've been, uh, I've been playing so many goddamn gigs uh, yeah. <laughs> and I love it, man. You know, I, 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 it's my passion. It's my, it's my trade. Um, and mm. I love my bandmates and everything, but man, like when I'm home, I'm just home these days. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, now I got, I got to get you out next year, at least to see to one of the concerts and see here now. We'll go. Have we'll see. I'll, I'll get out there. You know, I was supposed to play at the gallery during one of the, uh, during one of the variants. And, oh uh, shit. You know, we had to cancel because there was some kind of variant wave. I forget even when it was. Maybe it was uh, last winter, the one before. I mean, it was the Omicron one, but uh, probably. You know, I, I I'm gonna get out there and play at the gallery eventually. Yeah, um, I hope so. You know, I get out and make some noise locally a little bit. I mean, I I hit it pretty hard around here between between like 2015 or 16 until like 2021. I was hitting this area really hard nice so with little feet i've just been playing here with them and kind of i've got this thing coming up november 2nd it's like it's this band i have i call it el dorado slim which is of course an old little feet instrumental right we play that's the one little feet song we play is the one they haven't played in 45 years wow but um yeah it's like a six-piece funk band we play like instrumentals it's just like a band to come down and you know drink what you want smoke what you want and uh you know just vibe out and have fun i i have this long career as a singer songwriter and i my last album rust belt i put out uh in 2021 and i just felt like man i'm just so tired of like singing songs and making people listen to them like i just want to play like i want to get this like bitches brew meets james brown type vibe going on yeah. And I just want people to come and I want them to just forget about everything. I don't want them to have to listen to a single word I'm saying. Mm-hmm. And I just want it to be a complete experience for people, like totally relaxing. Absolutely. And, man. and funky. So we've been doing that and we play, we play the music, you know, we play some, some miles and cannibal Adderley and uh, Grant green is my main inspiration for the band, the great jazz and funk guitarist. Um, so we do a lot of his arrangements of like old R&B songs and the band is absolutely incredible. It's like a six piece band. This guy, Pat Bianchi plays organ. Who's uh, just basically a genius. He plays left-hand bass and uh, he's great. And uh, Tony Leone from Little Feet's been playing drums on most of the gigs. Uh, Clark Gaten and Craig nice. Dreyer play trombone and sax. And then we got Fred Walcott on percussions. So it's like a, it's a really funky unit, man. But we're at the we're at the City Winery in New York City on uh, Wednesday, November second. Got some people watching. Wednesday, November second, City Winery is yep. a great place. Got some people watching, saying, "Hey, how are you?" Talking about Danny Clinch, Danny Boy, Breaking Grandma. That's a great name, guy. I don't know who you are, <laughs> or maybe it's a girl. I don't know. I've no. This idea. is the first time I saw these come up. Is this did that this just is, start we, happening? Yeah, no, no. They've been people have been commenting the whole way through. Um, I just usually bring that up at the end. Usually, again, my producer's usually here and he usually takes care of that kind of stuff. So oh, I got you. All right. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, people watch live, man. So it's a nice, uh, nice little community that we've got over here. I love that. Um, I got to ask you the last three questions that I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? Yeah, let's do it. All right, let's do it. If you can go back in time and talk to your younger self, what piece of advice would you give yourself that would help you today? I 
I mean, my the first thing that jumps to mind is become a marine biologist. Ooh. That's a that's a different trajectory for you. But but the problem is is that my family I wouldn't have, you know, all these experiences. I wouldn't yeah. have um, you know, what what would have been better for what would have been better for me before I met all these amazing people would have been that. Right, right. <laughs> but you know, this is this is a very it's a bizarre thing. So if I was going to advise myself to keep everything, I See, that's the thing that I that's weird about that question is I feel like if I went back and talked to my younger self, I would somehow erase my family <laughs> and my career like by accident. You know, this is the deepest anyone has thought of this question. Yeah. <laughs> I like you're going full back to the future, Michael J. Fox. Yeah, I don't I don't think I, that's exactly what I'm telling. Like back to the future, <laughs> like like Marty McFly is not gonna, you know, do something right. I I don't know. Um, all right, if I could go back, let's let me give a further caveat to it. If I could sure. go back and have my life pretty much exactly as it is now, mm -hmm. um, what would I tell my my younger self? Yeah. Um, seek medication and therapy sooner. Ooh. <laughs> that's a good, that's a little ominous, but that's a good one. I feel like that one applies to a lot of us. <laughs> it would save, it would have saved a lot of time. Yeah, I hear you, man. I fucking get that 100%. Uh, that's just a good across the board. Um, next question is, what had to end in your life, good or bad, that led you to where you are today? I mean, the guitar, right? I mean, it's just, you know. I mean, I, I'm a singer-songwriter. I'm a producer, you know. I play a lot of different instruments, and I, I love, I live for the totality of music. Right. But but the guitar was everything about it is what sucked me in. I mean, it's like a it it's like a machine gun. It's like it's like a sex object. <laughs> I mean, I'm looking over at them now and it's like every every day I'm here in my office and I look over at them and I go, God damn, that's something <laughs> else. Right. Because it's just, you know, when you go from when you go from, you know, O'Carroll to, you know, Jimi Hendrix machine gun and you think about everything that was smashed in between. I mean, that's really in my career. That's what got me here is like the guitar. Yeah. You know, got it, man. Um, and the last question ties into the show. If this was a genuine dystopia more so than now, and you had your choice between like government collapse or aliens or zombies or a comet heading toward the earth, but you wake up the next day and it's everybody's last day. What would be your epic death? How would you want to go out? Oh, man. Um, well, you know, Greg Allman always said he wanted to die like Johnny Guitar Watson on the stage. Oh, wow. You know? Um, yeah. And uh, I had another friend who used to say that who ended up passing away in hospice. Oh. Um, and, and Greg, of course, had a long convalescence. Uh, that was difficult. I was with him for part of it. Um, so first of all, I would be very grateful that I would not have to die in a bed over a long period of time. <laughs> I would try yeah. to embrace that. And I would spend every second with my friends and family not playing music at all. Wow. And listening to Kind of Blue and um electric lady land 
Ooh. And Ray Charles Atlantic box set and Sam Cooke and uh, Af all kinds of Indian and African music and uh, classical music, a lot of Bach, a lot of Glenn Gould playing Bach and Brahms. I'd have that spinning. I would, my wife is an amazing, amazing cook and, and professional. And uh, we would make the most epic meal you can imagine for all our friends and family to go with it. And I would be in the Hudson Valley uh, near Woodstock at our house up there with all of them. Wow. That's fucking awesome, dude. I'm going to, I'm going to come see you if that ever, <laughs> that sounds perfect, dude. Well, we already, you know, you got to remember, that's what we did during the pandemic. So I already know the answer to that question. Oh, nice, man. Yeah, you're right. That's a good point. Did, did you read that? Uh, I, I can, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, but the Gary Scheinkarten book, Our, Our Country Friends. Have you read that? No. Yet? It's been on a lot of best of lists and stuff. It's, it's really, it's the pandemic novel and it's. Oh shit, dude. What is, what's it called? It's uh, Our Country Friends by, Our you know, that guy, Gary Scheigarten or he's, he's Russian I in origin, but he grew up in the States. He's a fantastic writer. Yeah. I'll check him out, man. I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah. You're going to love awesome. it because it's, 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 it's hilarious too. It's mm -hmm. like, he's amazing, has an amazing wit uh, in his writing. Yeah. I'm but, all uh, about that kind of It stuff, is a man. dystopian novel. Beautiful. <laughs> um, dude, it's been a blast having you on, man. I'm sorry I kept you for an extra 20 minutes, but I, I was having a good time. I'm having a blast, man. I, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Yeah, absolutely, dude. Come back on anytime you want. You got it, man. Yep, take care. Take care. Bye. Bye.